All right. Well, good morning. morning. We're starting a new series, and this is great news for you because uh, this whole series is going to be like one big message, and so today we're just covering the introduction. So, uh, and I'm, I'm going to dump a lot of information on you today. So if at any point you feel lost or you're like, I need to hear that again, this sermon will be on our website, both the video and the audio, so you could re-listen to it, or if you have an issue with it, you could listen to it to make sure that you didn't mishear me, and if you still have an issue with it, the good news is at the very end of the series, which is on the seventh, part seven of the series, we're going to have a Q&R, question and response. So uh, you can save up all your questions, and then you could submit it on the last, uh, last Sunday we talked about this, because we're going to be going over a lot of things that might be controversial for some people. For other people, it's just confirmation of what you already know. Um, but uh, I just want to explain what the, t- the bumper video is. By the way, this bumper video, I didn't make this one. Somebody in the church made it, and he's, where, I don't know where he is. He's in the bathroom. Okay. Okay. So when he comes out of the bathroom, you can say thank you. Um, but I want to explain the video a little bit for you guys. Uh, so the idea here is that this, the, 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 the bumper video started with the question, why God? And this is uh, a nod to this world that we used to live in a long time ago, where everything was, it was explained away with God as the answer. Why are there earthquakes? Because of God. Why, why, why is there a volcano erupting? Because of God. Oh, why is this happened? Because of God. Why did that person die? This person survived? Because of God. And, but as we started studying science, was, as we started making discoveries, we started to realize that it's not just God as the answer to all these questions, that there's actually science behind it. And so as we started to fill in these gaps with science, people started asking the question, why is God always the answer to everything? Don't we live in the world now where we don't have to use God as an answer for everything? Like, so the question is, why God? Like, why, why, do, why does it have to be God, right? Now, the thing is, this is primarily, from what I understand and what I've experienced, a lot of people have moved away from religion. People have moved away from God because they ask the question like, well, why does it have to be God? Why God, right? Our goal, and I'm going to tell you what the goal of this whole series is, is that we want to move from a place of why God to putting a comma in there, which is why God, like asking questions to God. We acknowledge his presence and we ask him, well, why is it this way, God? And I think that's a huge, small difference, but a huge difference at the same time. And uh, this is what I mean by this. A lot of us grew up in Sunday school. And we, have the, and we, we feel like, oh, Sunday school is good. You know, I've learned so much through Sunday school. And we take that knowledge, and then we go off to college. We go off into the workplace. We talk to that one uncle in our family that's skeptical about everything. Right? And then we ask, and then when they ask us a question, we give Sunday school answers, and for some reason, it doesn't seem to be good enough. Right? And so, what we're trying to do here is, is we're trying to take it from the Sunday, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with Sunday school, and I'll talk about that later. Sunday school is great, okay? But what we're talking about is maybe it's time that we move on to a deeper understanding of our faith so that we can start ans- asking better questions than just questions like, well, why does God have to fill in every gap that we have a question for? Every mystery we have, we just say it's God. It's just a matter of time before science explains it, right? So um, the question that I really want to dive in today is this. Have we outgrown our faith? Have we outgrown our faith? You know, I've heard people say, you know, um, you know my parents grew, like told me that the Bible is the word of God, right? And, and, I was taught that the world was created in six days and the seventh day God rested. I heard that the earth is only 6,000 years old, right? All that kind of stuff. And then you go to college. You go to your friends. 
And then your friends start asking questions like, do you really believe that the, you know, how old do you think the earth is? And you're like, 6,000 years. <laughs> and they laugh at you, and you're like, wait a minute. And so you start questioning, did I learn the wrong things? Or maybe the, the answers that was given in Sunday school is not good enough anymore. And so you ask the question, have I out outgrown my faith? And so I want to give you a story and a little context to this. Remember, today is like an introductory thing. Um, and by the way, I'm going to give you a lot of information, okay? And none of this information is original to me. Uh, a lot of smart people, I gather a lot of information from a lot of smart people, so none of this is from me. I don't want to take credit for any of this. Okay, but, okay, so I'm going to give you a little context to, to this series. So 9-11 so happened over a decade ago. 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, we expected and we knew that the church is going to be flooded with people the following Sunday. And sure enough, there was a lot of people who came to church because people had a lot of questions. How could this happen to us? I thought we were good. I thought God was protecting us. How could this happen? And then, you know, there was this whole resurgence, of like a kind of a mini revival that happened in America. People were like, I'm starting to go to church again. I'm starting to worship again. I'm starting to read the Bible again. And it was... It was a sad moment in his American history, but in a way, there was that silver lining that people were starting to go to church again. People were seeking God out again. And around that time, a little after that time, um, there's a guy named Sam Harris. There, here, here's a picture of Sam Harris. You've probably heard of him before. Maybe not seen his face, but that's what Sam, he's a neuroscientist. And he wrote a book. And this book, he wanted to get published, and it was called The End of Faith. End of Faith. And in this book, he basically wanted to say that that what's evil in this world, and because the whole the 9-11 thing happened, because of religion. And he wasn't just talking about Muslim or Islamic people. He was talking about all religions. He was talking about Christians, Buddhists, Hinduism. He was talking about all religion. And he said, the problem with this world are all the religious people in the world. That's why we end up with things like 9-11. And so he went through publisher after publisher because nobody wanted to pick it up because the publishers are like, we're in a sensitive time in America right now. We don't want to publish your book because we don't want hate mail. But after over a dozen publishers rejected him, finally one publisher picked it up. They, they put the books on the shelves, and for 33 weeks, it was on the top 10 books list. And, you know, and, and he made a lot of money off of that, right? And then a lot of Christians had issues with that book. They're like, how dare you say that about us, right? And so, so Sam Harris wrote another book. It's called The Letters to a Christian Nation and as to kind of rebut whatever the Christian said. And I want to give you a quote from his first book. This is what he thinks about religion. He says this, the men who committed 9-11 were certainly not cowards as they were repeatedly described in the Western media, nor were they lunatics in any ordinary sense. He's saying, you guys think these guys are evil. You guys think these, these guys are crazy, the people who hijack planes and crash them into buildings. He's like, they're not crazy. They're not weirdos. No. Next slide. They were men of faith, perfect faith, as it turns out. And this, it must finally be acknowledged, is a terrible thing to be. So he's saying the problem with the world are religious people. It's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> he actually said it. It's like, yeah, he said it. And maybe for some of you who are here, you're invited by a friend or you're like, hey, you know, I want to check out a church. You're probably thinking the same thing, like, yes, finally a pastor said it, right? <laughs> um, I don't agree with this. <laughs> just so you know. Okay, soon after that, another person wrote a book, and this person, his name is Richard Dawkins. 
Richard Dawkins, you've probably seen him before. He's probably more, more of the famous ones, right? He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And the reason I know this book exists is because I was on an airplane. I looked to the left and to the right of my seat because I got the coveted middle seat. And <laughs> I'm like, oh, they're reading the same book. And it was actually this book. It was a very, very famous book. They, he sold over 3 million copies of this book, right? And the opening paragraph of this book, this is what he wrote. If this book works as I intend... Religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. I mean, that's his whole thing. Now, this is very interesting. And the reason why this is interesting is because in the past, years and years ago, atheists said, I don't believe in God. I don't think God exists. And that was the end of their story. I just choose not to believe in God. But these two people, okay, along with this person, his name name is Christopher Hitt. Can you see him? Yeah. Christopher Hitchens. He passed away. We don't have a modern picture of him. He died of cancer. Um, with the, these three people, okay, were like, I don't know if it's just good for me to believe that God doesn't exist. I want to actually make a difference in the world with this knowledge. And so these people went on crusades telling people, how would you like to come to my event where we could have a deep baptism ceremony? And so a lot of people showed up, and they, they all lined up, and they he de I don't know how you de-baptize. Do you like wipe the water off their forehead. I don't know how they do it. But they de-baptize people to say, we were, our goal is to deconvert the entire world. I mean, these guys were not just happy with their personal beliefs about God. They wanted to make sure that everybody else believed that God doesn't exist. Christopher Hitchens wrote a book. He's a journalist. He wrote a book called God is Not Great. God is Not Great. And then the, the, the subtitle of that book is How Religion Poisons Everything. I mean, you could kind of get an idea of what these guys thought about religion in general. We're not talking about Christianity specifically. We're talking about all religions, right? So these three guys, next slide. These three guys, along with the fourth person, and depending on who you talk to, the fourth person might be different. Most commonly, they say there's a guy named Dennett. These four people are called, their nickname is the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. That's the, the nickname they go by because they're here to destroy Christianity, right? But these people have one common message for everybody, which is this, that religion is the problem. Religion is the problem. And so they had a goal. They had a vision. They're like, our goal is to make sure that people are no longer Christians, and we're going to do everything we can. And, you know, they do talk about other religions, but they seem to be focusing more and more on Christianity now. They seem to say that we want to make sure that people don't fall into this trap called religion. Now, the result was interesting. The result was interesting because the result of that was not that there was a whole bunch of people who said, we don't believe in God anymore. That didn't happen right away. What happened was they created a new category of people, which is the fastest growing category in the, in, in the United States right now. And that category is called the nuns, not nuns. Okay. How you spell it actually matters in this case. Okay. 23% of Americans, uh, the reason it's called nuns is because when you're trying to fill something out, like the form, you know, tell us your religious affiliation, at the very bottom it says none of the above. That's people who check that box off, okay? The majority, 23% of Americans in the last few years have checked that box. It's the fastest growing group in America. As a matter of fact, if you want to know the, the demographic of all this, the biggest group of people who check that box, 55% of millennial males fit into that category. 55, more than half. So this is a really, really big group. Now, what do, they, what, what do they stand for? These are the people who are like, I'm sick and tired of the debate that's going on, whether if God exists or it doesn't exist. Okay, so I don't really care about that. But what I do, you know, so, so basically nuns, they stand for this. They're not hostile, and they're not, and they say, we're also not affiliated towards any religion. 
like we just have to think we don't care we don't care who, you know like sure there's christian church yeah, i don't care about that over there i don't care you know i'm, I'm just going to be neutral that's that's their thing but here's the thing okay when we look at the demographic of where these people came from okay they didn't just wake up one morning and said hey i'm going to be a nun n-o-n-e-s i'm going to be a nun you know that's that's not how it works as it turns out when we look at all the data it turns out that most of these people are migrating away from religion into this category. There aren't that many people who started as atheists and moved into this category. There's people who have been going to church or mosque or temple that's moved into this category. And when you look at which religion are most of these nuns from, it turns out they're mostly from us, the evangelical community. And that's when I'm like, okay, that's just breaking my heart. That's just breaking my heart. And the reason it breaks my heart is because there's this one key principle that we have to understand, which is this. Moving away from something means you're moving towards something else. Meaning, when you move away from the church, you're not just moving away from the church, you're moving towards something else, right? If you're moving away from a certain type of allegiance to something, you're actually moving away from something, but you're actually moving towards another type of allegiance, right? And this is a basic principle. And most often than not, what happens is, and here's a little diagram for you guys, this is your triangle represents the faith that you're in right now. When you walk away, so next slide, when you walk away from one thing, you inevitably end up in something else. And so nuns is basically those people who are walking away, but they're eventually going to get to this other triangle called atheism. Atheism. Now, the reason why this breaks my heart is this. Most people who walk away from their faith and inevitably ends up in atheism, they think they're moving away from something that's packed with rules and regulations and implications and baggage, okay? They walk away from it hoping that they will end up in a place where there's nothing, that there's like no baggage and there's no implications, there's, no, there's nothing there. But the re like I said, it breaks my heart because that's not true. They think that they're walking away into something neutral, but the truth is there's a lot of implications there. And so today, you know, remember Jesus talked about this. He said, make sure you count the cost of whatever you're about to join, right? So I, what I want to do for you guys today is this, okay? In case you're like on the fringe or you're like, I'm considering becoming a nun. It sounds weird, like I'm going to be a nun. Um, I want to talk to you guys about this, the logical outworkings of atheism. And what I mean by that is if you're the kind of person who likes to be logical about everything, meaning you want to be consistent in life, Right? For example, if you believe in Jesus, an all-loving God that cares about all people, one of the logical outworkings is that you're going to have to allow Jesus to teach you how to love the people around you. And that also means to be generous. That also means to be self-sacrificial. That's just part of the package of believing in an all-loving God. Okay? In the same way, if you believe and you want to adopt atheism, there's all these other implications that you need to live and be aware of. Okay? Because it's not... A belief system without any baggage there is baggage that comes with it and so i'm not here to sway you one way or the other that's not my role today my role is i just want to expose to you what the implications of atheism is and then we'll come back and talk about these people over here the christians who uh, yeah they're gonna get their bashing later okay so okay so my goal today is not to tell you whether what you believe is right or wrong my goal today is to just expose to you the baggage that comes with both sides of the story. Okay, so, so the first, and, and I'm going to try my best to explain this because this is like a lot of knowledge. So the first natural logical outworking of atheism is that you have no inherent value. You have no inherent value. 
By the way, there's a whole bunch of these things. I just picked three today. No inherent value. Okay, this is what I'm talking about when I say you have no inherent value. To have an inherent value means that you have value whether if you do things, don't accomplish things, or if you're, good, if you're good or bad at something, you still have value because God says that you have value. That's what it means to have inherent value. Instead, in, in atheism, you, if there is no God, next slide, all human value is ascribed. So I'll give you a, a simple example. So I don't know if you overheard me talking to Tim in the past few weeks, but we always joke about which is better, Macs or PC? And obviously the answer is Macs. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now, the reason why, okay, I used to be a PC user, okay, but I, I ascribe value to Macs because there was this day I converted over from PCs to Mac because I do more graphical things. And I, rem I have memories with them. Like, I remember sitting at a Starbucks working on my computer, and the guy next to me had the newest Mac. And I'm like, hey, nice computer. And we had this small conversation that I still remember until today. And because I have this memory and feeling associated with the product that I'm using, I ascribed value to this piece of aluminum called a laptop called the MacBook Pro, okay? Whereas Tim, he probably has, I don't know, some special relationship Maybe it was just cheaper, right? I don't know, right? It's more affordable, I don't know. Every time I ask him to give me a good example, like give a good uh, argument, he says it's more affordable. I'm like, okay, I can't argue with that. Okay, but, but he has ascribed value to his PC. And so it's this back and forth, and because it's, it's relative, right? I ascribe value to this, therefore I find this valuable. He ascribed value to that, so he finds that valuable, and that's how it works. But if we were not in the picture, these are just two pieces of plastic and metal that's just sitting there that has no value at all. Because we ascribe it, it has value. Okay? Now, what if it's not computers? What if it's people? For example, my grandmother's passed away a long time ago. Right? And she lives in the other side of the ocean. She lives in Japan. Right? But I had a relationship with her. So whether she's here right now or not, she still has value from my eyes. But... To some person who just never met, met my grandmother, she that person, my grandmother probably doesn't have as much value as I would give her. Does that make sense? Now, what if it's not a family member? What if it's a neighbor? What if it's a group of a, a race of people? I have a special relationship with the Asian American community because that's where I grew up, right? So I have a lot of value for that group of people. But the other racial groups, I don't really have that much of an interaction with them, so I, I, I'm not going to give it that much value. But do you see what's happening here? Or what if it's gender? I hang out with a lot of people of the same gender, so I put a lot more value on them. But the other gender that I don't spend time with, you know, like, they're not that important to me, right? If it's up to a human being to decide who has value, ascribed value, then it's a very dangerous thing. It, it's a dangerous place to be, right? What if it's not me? What if I see value in all people around me, but a person who is bigger and stronger than me says, no, from my perspective, that group has more value than this group, right? Who am I to compete against somebody that's stronger than me to say that where the value lies? And so what's happened over history, okay, and this is like a very simplified version of this, what's happened over time is that somebody rises to power and this person of power says, this group has value and that group doesn't. This race has value, that race doesn't. This gender has value, that race, that, that gender doesn't. And as time goes on, we have segregation, we have all these, right? When we allow a human being to ascribe value to human beings, it ends up being a very, very dangerous place to live. If you don't believe in God, 
the only value that you could think of is described. It's not inherent. You see, as Christians, what we're supposed to be doing, I don't know if all Christians adhere to this, but this is what we're supposed to be doing, is that when we look for value in people, we look to God and say, God, who has value? And God says, well, my image is in every single human being in this world, therefore everybody has value. We look at the world and say, well, I don't like you that much, but according to God, you have as much value as I do, and that person of that race, of that gender, has just as much value as I do. That person who's poor has value just as much as the rich person does, and this is the way that God sees the world, and therefore, as Christians, we adopt his view and say, yes, the whole world has value. Every single, single human being, good and evil, has value. But if you don't believe in the existence of God, the only kind of value you could give to human beings is an ascribed one, and that's a very dangerous place to be. People are not laptops. People are not cars. People are not objects. People are carriers of the image of God. So the first implication here is that you have no inherent value. I'm not saying, you know, that, you know, your belief is wrong, that if you're atheist, I'm not, you know, of course, as a, as a pastor, I have my bias. I believe God is real. I believe that he is true and all that kind of stuff. But today, my goal here is not to pick a fight with anybody. I'm not going to get into this debate of, oh, here are the three reasons why I believe God exists. Here are the three reasons you don't believe God exists. I'm not here to do that. I'm just laying out the round groundwork for here are the baggages that come with atheism if you choose to adopt it, okay? So that was the first one. The second one is this. Free will is an illusion. Now, this might be a little too brainy. To me, I was going, getting a big kick out of this. I was trying to explain it to my wife, and then she was like, yeah, this is too much. Okay, okay, free will is an illusion. If you don't believe in God, the existence of God, meaning everything you believe are things that are just physical and you can see in front of yourself, that means that you have no soul. If you talk to a scientist and say, do, do human beings have souls? They would say, no, these are just neurons and, you know, biology. And he's, you're basically a bag of DNA walking around the wor- world, okay? What that means is that everything that you do, every decision you make is not really a decision. It's just an outworking of your DNA. Um, this is called, this is what the, ph- the philosophical world calls determinism. Um, you guys probably heard of this really smart guy. His name is Stephen Hawking. Uh, he passed away a few months ago, a year ago, I don't know, uh, recently, right? He's a world-famous uh, physicist, and he gave this really cool lecture in uh, Cambridge uh, over like 20 years ago, and he was talking about determinism. He was talking about if the world were to just kick God out of the picture and everything was just a physical thing, if everything was just science, he says there are some outworkings of that that you need to know, and he says the top thing on that list is you don't have free will anymore. Here's a quote from another person that puts it well for me. Atheists should believe that a person will marry and nurture offspring because our genes demands reproduction. He says, if you don't believe in the existence of God, if you don't believe that there is a soul, right, then you have to believe that when you fall in love with somebody and you marry somebody, that's just your genes telling you it's time to find somebody that you like, you know, so that you could pass your genes on to the next generation. That's basically what he's saying. Um, you create because creativity served a survival advantage to our ape ancestors. You're like, oh, I'm really creative. I know how to look beautiful. I know how to build things. And all that kind of, right? Well, the reason you have that skill is because evolution has taught you how to do that because that was the only way that your ancestors could ensure its survival. Next slide. You build cities and laws because this allowed our ancestors time and peace to reproduce and protect our genes. And this is a key line right here. Our only directive is to obey our genes. Every choice you make, you think is a choice, but is really not a choice. 
You're just doing what your genes are telling you to do. Inside of all of us is a desire to survive and to pass on our genes to the next generation. And every little thing that you're doing, every choice you're making in life is just your inside code telling you what to do. You think you're making a choice, but you're really not. You're just living out the code that's inside of you that's been pre-programmed for you to live out. So when you think you have free will, you really don't. You might be under that impression, but it's not really there. He ends by saying, eat, sleep, reproduce, and die. That is our Bible. Now, these aren't my words. These are words from these really smart people who have accepted atheism and said, we want to be consistent with our belief, and if we are going to be consistent with our belief, then this is one of them. Third on the list is that humanity has no absolute morals. Now, I want to make sure that I don't offend anybody here, although I probably have already, right? I am not saying that atheists are immoral. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that there is no sense of morality in, you know, that you don't know right and wrong. That, no, every human being understands what good and bad is. Everybody understands evil and good, right and wrong. Everybody understands that. But the question that, that these atheists are bringing to, to the front is this. When you said, I'm being good or I'm being right, the question is this, good for what? Right for what? You see, because if I'm starving and somebody over there has a plentiful of vegetables and cattle or whatever in their, in their farm, I'm going to go steal food from them because why? Because it's good for my, me and my family, right? Or I'm going to go and do, uh, rob a bank. They might think it's wrong, but at least for me, it's good for my survival. You see, so when it comes to good and evil, everybody has a sense of morality, but the question is good for what? So I'll give an example of that. If I were to come into your dorm room or your office or your house or whatever you, wherever you live, and I just come in and I look around and I see, since we're talking about laptops, okay, I'll take your, I'll take your PC, you know, not worth much because it's not as good as a Mac, but, you know, I'm going to take it. And at that point, <laughs> I have the mic, Tim, so I could do this all day. <laughs> um, so I'm going to take the computer, right, and I'm going to go out, and if somebody says, no, oh, well, well, you can't do that, I'm going to say, well, why not? It's like, I think I'm doing what's right. Like, well, what you, now, this is an extreme example, right? But the thing here is people like to think that when you're making a choice on, on, the, on the grounds of morality, you're making a decision apart from everybody else, right? So in a world where nobody else exists except for me, it's easy for me to say what's right and wrong because I'm the only one that's affected by it. But when there's somebody else involved and your morality clashes with their morality, then we have a problem. C.S. Lewis, one of the really smart Christian guys, so this is the one quote that I'm going to use from a non-atheist. Okay, C.S. Lewis said this. He said that when you think about life, think about it as a journey, an open sea. You're on a boat. And there's a few questions you have to answer before you get to your destination. Number one is, where's your starting point? The second question is, where are you going to end? The third question is, why are we on this water in the first place? And the third question is, how do we not bump into other boats? And what he's basically saying there is, in life, you have to know your origin, you have to know your destination, your purpose in life, and you have to make sure that your morality doesn't interfere with other people's moralities. That's basically what he, that illustration means, right? And he says that if you believe in a world where everybody could choose what morality is for, you know, it's good for me, it's good for you, it's good for the country, whatever, right? You fill in the blank yourself. Then what happens is that we have something called absolute morals that just goes out the window. And now we have something called relative morals. Right? What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. Right? 
So if I were to go and do something that you think is immoral, I would say, mind your own business because this is what's right for me. When you do something, I can't mind your business because this, that's what's right for you, right? But he said, there's, the, there's huge implications to this. And by the way, this is, this is really hard to do, okay? If you believe that relative morals is okay, that you're like, absolute morals, there's no need for that. We could all live like we care about our own things, right? At that point, you have to change your vocabulary. And what I mean by that is, if you believe in relative morals, you cannot use words like ought. You ought to do that, because that's me imposing my morals onto you, right? You can't use words like you should do that, because that's another word that we use to impose our morals on somebody else. You can't use words like you can't do that, because by doing that, I'm saying, I think this is wrong, so you can't do that. You're like, how, how dare you tell me what I can and can't do? We have to change our entire vocabulary to make sense of this, uh, to be consistent with this truth. Now, let me just be clear with you guys on this, okay? This, th- these three things on the screen, these three things are not things that I just came up with. These are three things that the neo-atheists are all saying that you have to believe if you want to be consistent with atheism. These are coming from these smart gentlemen's lips. They're, they're the ones that are making these claims. As a matter of fact, I was listening to one podcast of Sam Harris, and he was saying he had to correct his own speech over and over again in his podcast because he realizes that he was using words that he shouldn't be using if he was an atheist. And this is what I find is really interesting, is that even these neo-atheists, it's like you have to put up your guard to make sure they're consistent with your belief of atheism. And if they put their guards down, they would just wreak theism, which is weird, right? (laughs) Okay, so that's the deal. So, I'm not saying that you should believe in Christianity or you shouldn't, or if you believe that God exists, that it's Christianity that you should believe of all that. As a pastor, I wish that you do that, but I'm not saying that's not the point of today's sermon. The point of today's sermon is, I just want to lay it out there and say, if you want to choose that life, this comes with it. It's not, you're not moving into a neutral ground. You're moving into a world with other baggage that I don't know if you're willing to accept. So one of the points I really want to make today is this, that most people if you believe in being consistent with your beliefs, don't become atheist because of its appeal. It's not like, man, look at atheism, looks so good. Look at those three things that Koss just listed for us. Sign me up. It's not because it looks so good that people move towards atheism. So the question is, well, why are we migrating over there? Well, the truth of the, ma- the fact is even harder to swallow than the first part that I just talked about because now I'm going to turn to the Christian side. The reason is this. Most people become atheists because Christianity has lost its appeal. Remember how I said that you have to walk away from something in order to approach something? People are moving away from Christianity because it's lost its appeal. How how, how do you know if that's the case? Do you have proof? Well, not that long ago, not even a year ago, December 2017, Pew Research did a a survey with these nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, and they said, what is the reason why you decided to check that box that says none? I think that's a great question, right? And so they have a list of seven. Seventh one is basically like other reasons, so that we don't know what the seventh one is. So I'm going to list the top six. This is what it says. Number one, questions. I question a lot of religious teachings. Number two, I don't like the possession churches take on social slash political issues. Number three, religion is irrelevant to me. Number four, I don't believe in God. Number five, I don't like religious organizations. Number six, I don't like religious leaders. Hey, that's me. Well, well that's at the very bottom of the list. So I'm, you know... Okay, the top two 
has been really, really high on the list. It's like in the 30-something percentile. It's like each one is really high up there. The rest is like in the single digits. Now, I just want to highlight the ones that have to do with us, okay? Well, look at that. <laughs> if God were to look at this whole situation, like people leaving the church to go to the other side, right? He's looking at all this and saying, now, which part of this do I take responsibility for? And he's going to be like, oh, number four. <laughs> people don't think I, I exist, right? <laughs> and that came in at 7%, 7%. That means 93% of nuns moved away because of the church, because of the things that we stand for, the things that we argue about, the way we come off to people, and your religious leader. <laughs> Sorry, I take about 3% of the blame. Okay, but when you look at this, you realize that the neo-atheist is kind of right, that religion is the problem, but I'll take it one step further because I think we could just kind of look at it and say, yeah, religion's the problem. I want to go, go further than that and say this. We are the problem. We are the problem. Christianity is, has lost its appeal. And when I say Christianity, I'm not talking about Jesus has lost its appeal. I'm not saying that God has lost its appeal. I'm saying that Christianity as a religion, as an institution, has lost its appeal. How do I know this? Because when I read through the pages of Scripture, when I read through the four biographies in the Bible about Jesus, this is what I discover about him. That people travel far to meet Jesus because they're like, I just want to be near him. And when they meet him, people travel far with Jesus. They're like, Jesus, you're going somewhere else. I'm going to follow you wherever you go, right? Because they found Jesus so appealing. And not only that, Jesus liked them back, right? I mean, that's the thing. It, but... But nowadays, I feel like Christianity has become like this closed group. This, this, it's like you're in or you're out. You know, Jesus had people following him who didn't believe in his claims also. People followed him. There were skeptics who followed Jesus, if you read the Bible. Uh, you go all the way back to the Old Testament and see how the people of God, you know, the Israelites who came out of Egypt. You look at that story and you find out that the Bible always says there was the Israelites and the mixed multitude who left Egypt. You know what the mixed multitude is? These are people who saw the plagues of Egypt, and they're like, okay, we're out of here. We don't believe in God, but we're just going to follow them. And so they follow the Israelites out of Egypt, and God didn't say, no, 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 no. Only the children of God are allowed to follow me out of Egypt. You stay here. No, no, God allowed them to come. When did Christianity become such an exclusive club? It's supposed to be appealing. And the Bible says this, the Bible says that we as Christians are called to be the body of Christ, meaning if Jesus was appealing to people from inside and outside the group, then maybe we should be reflecting the same image to the people around us. Maybe we should be appealing too. Jesus makes a very strong comment about this, and I want to share that verse with you. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says this, you, people who follow Jesus, that's Christians, right, are the salt of the earth. Now, salt, if you're good at cooking, you know that salt adds flavor. It brings out the flavor, right? I know a lot of Christians who interpret this as, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go to the stadium and hold up a sign that says you're going to hell because that's how I add salt to the world. Adding salt to, the, to, to, to food isn't to make it saltier, okay? Like, it's supposed to taste better after you add salt, not make it taste bad, okay? That's, Jesus is making a very clear point here. He's saying, when, people, when Jesus said, you are a salt of the earth, he's saying that you're supposed to make the world better, not worse. You are the salt of the earth. But the word salt also had another meaning back then. 
because salt wasn't just used to flavor things, it was also used as a preservative. It made food last longer, that the world would be better and would, be la- would last longer because these Christians roamed this earth, right? Christians are supposed to be a blessing to the world, to the people around us. And Jesus was afraid. He said, there's going to be a day where I feel like you're going to lose your saltiness. What does he say about that? This is what he says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Good question. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And I would say, there's a lot of Christians who feel like they're being trampled on today. Why does the world hate us now? Why does the world feel like we're not, you know, uh, why we're not relevant anymore? Why, 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 why? Jesus would say, maybe it's because we lost our saltiness. We're no longer salt of the earth anymore. We're more like that spice that you put, that somebody puts a whole bunch on your food and you're like, oh, I can't eat this anymore, right? I think we're more like that now. We're supposed to bring the good flavors of the world out so that people will be blessed by it. And we don't do that anymore. So why do people leave our faith? It's our fault. It's our fault. Christianity was supposed to be about love and care for the people who are marginalized. And now it's all about how can we build us this institution and make it better and more fortified? And how can we, you know, get a big building with crazy lights and smoke machines? Like, that's not what Christianity is, but it seems to look like that from the outside now. So the question is this, Cots, Cots, what do we do? What do we do? Uh, what, what can we do? Is, is there still hope for us? Well, if you're one of the people who are contemplating about, well, here's my faith, here, here's the diagram again. Here's our faith, and I'm, I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of doubts, and I, I don't know if I want to be part of this anymore. I'm ready to walk away from it. I want to tell you this, that if you walk away from your faith towards something else, that atheism is not the only option out there. Here, let me show you this diagram here. You could walk the other way and move towards faith 2.0. This is what I mean by that. There are things you learned in Sunday school. Maybe there's a nice verse that, that was given to you to combat any kind of doubt you had in your life. When somebody says, how do you know you have value? And you could say, well, because Genesis chapter 1, because God created us and put his image in us. And you're talking to a professor, and the professor's like, yeah, but I don't believe in that stuff. Give me more reason why I should believe that you have value. Maybe Sunday school answers don't work anymore. Faith 2.0 is God allowing doubt to come into your life so that you leave your Sunday school faith and move to an adult Christian faith. I'm convinced that there are too many Christians in this world who are still hanging on to what they learned in Sunday school. Now, okay, by the way, nothing wrong with Sunday school. Okay, we have Sunday school teachers here, and I have nothing against you. What I'm saying is, for a child, okay, for a child, Sunday school education is appealing. That's how we teach to them so they understand. They know black and white. They understand what the, where the boundaries are, what you should and shouldn't do. But when you grow up, it's not, that's not appealing anymore. We need to teach you how to think for yourself. And so that's what this series is about. For the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the things that we probably have carried over from our Sunday school faith. And it's time that we upgrade it to an adult Christian faith. I call this Faith 2.0. That it's time that we say, 
you know what? I know these answers don't work in my classroom anymore or in my cubicle anymore or with my crazy uncle that always seems to be a skeptic about everything. It's like, I know that doesn't work anymore. So it's time that I start giving adult answers for adult questions. When God gives you a doubt, when he allows doubt to enter your mind and you're like, oh, I can't stay with the faith I'm in with, with right now, right? Or when you ask your question this, have we outgrown our faith? There we go. Have we outgrown our faith? My answer, and I hope your answer would be, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that you feel like you've outgrown your, your child faith and that we're moving, move, moving towards a, a more adult understanding of who God is and what he stands for and how we have to live that out into the world outside of us. I hope that we move on from, you know, like when I, when I was a kid and, uh, in high school and I, you know, I started going to church when I was in 11th grade I, and I remember sitting there I went to every single Sunday school for about a few weeks and by the time that I reached my like, I don't know, 10th or 20th Sunday school class, I felt like I needed all the answers to Christianity because the answer was always Bible, Jesus, have faith and read, the, you know, read your Bible uh, more, I guess. I don't know, right? And so I thought, okay, I figured everything out. I don't need to go to Sunday school anymore. What we're trying to do now is we're going to say, let's take those, those Sunday school answers and push it to the side. And sure, delete the files, empty your trash can, your recycling bin, and let's relearn what it is to be a Christian as an adult. So I hope you guys come for the next few weeks because we're going to be ta- tackling some really, really tough topics. And it's going to be very heady, so if you're like to take notes, make sure you bring your notebook or you can watch a sermon again because this is going to be something, I hope, will propel us to becoming more appealing to the world around us. Amen? All right, let me pray for the series and for all of us.